Hello, welcome to another episode of The Caring Instinct. This week with our guest is Anna Hobbs, who is a teacher, ran a school in Asia, self-directed school against the backdrop of a very strict culture of schooling and created a very free, self-directed environment which a lot of the parents kind of flock towards. So we find out a little bit more about her her journey in, in alternative education both in Asia and in England. She homeschooled her three kids. Oh, I just loved yeah. this one. I can't pick which was my favourite bit. Come and have a listen and we hope you enjoy. And listen out for, for how they shared chores when all her kids were at home. Yes. Three kids at home. That was, was it my favourite bit? Easily. <laughs> Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So a little bit about we know each other. We met at East Kent Sudbury Home Educating Centre, I think. Yeah met with our interest in alternative education. I was fairly new into that world, but you've been there for quite a while. So tell us a bit more about your journey into alternative education. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess it probably started when I was a child. I'm a third culture kid, so I grew up um, in Asia, spent um, almost half my life there, actually. And um, because of that, my mum home-educated me and my brother and my sister. So we were used to that sort of lifestyle. Um, but it was out of necessity then, I would say. Uh, there weren't any international schools where we were living. We did school at home with my mum. And then in the afternoons, we would sort of go to the local school and join in with things like sports and so it started then really because uh, when I came back to England at age 14 I went into mainstream school there and so had a, a taste of mainstream school in the UK which was a big shock but um, I sort of carried with me that real appreciation I think for the home education that I'd ex experienced with my mum and and I think the the biggest thing that I sort of took from it was the closeness that I had with my mum. I just loved being able to hang out with her and my brother and my sister. And I just thought when I had my own kids, I thought that's what I want for my kids. You know, I want that togetherness. I want um, that freedom to play. I mean, we played for hours and hours every day. <laughs> sort of, we'd just go out in the afternoon and come back for tea time. And all sorts of risky, adventurous play. And we didn't have a phone for mum to check, you know, where we were or anything. But we would oh, get into all sorts of climb down manholes and be on the roofs of buildings. And <laughs> that has really sort of influenced the direction I've taken sort of an education for my own children and then later on in in actually um, founding a, a democratic school. So your mum didn't kind of just recreate school in the home it was a lot different there was a lot of freedom it was a, a lot about relationship there was being a lot together. of freedom yeah it yeah. was it was much more structured than I've done with my children much more structured she was a trained primary school teacher yeah. Um, and we did have a set curriculum, but actually the sit-down work time was probably, I don't know, two hours a day. And the rest was, was all just time to play, time to do whatever we wanted. Lots of sort of reading time with my mum. She would read to us every day. We'd do a lot of cooking. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a really precious experience, really. Oh, it sounds amazing. Do you know what made me think? One of my reasons for convention schooling is as a mum 
I'd much rather be someone who sort of comforts them after school, makes it hot chocolate and plunges on the sofa to watch a Disney movie than someone who pushes them towards GCSE. I'm very happy with a pushing bit to be outsourced to teachers. I'm very grateful for the, for the job where they're doing with it. And I don't have to do it. I can be a haven at home. Do you feel this tension with your own children or when you were homeschooled and potentially your mom was maybe preparing you to go back to school in England? And if you do, how do you straddle it? I think sometimes, to be totally honest, I was jealous of parents who could just send their kids off to school and not have any responsibility for that side of things and be able to trust other people to do that and then be... They could be the fun, do the fun stuff at home. And like you said, you know, snuggle up with the hot chocolates at the end of the day. And sometimes I was jealous of that, definitely, because the responsibility is quite big to carry. And especially when it's not necessarily, you know, the, the norm where you are. Some people aren't in a community with lots of other people doing it. It can be quite isolating. And the responsibility can can be heavy. I think the way around that is to to find people um, who are like-minded and doing similar things and actually support each other. It's sort of creating a village, isn't it, around you of people who are all sort of walking the same path together, even though it might look very different in their different families. You have got something really important in common. (laughs) And I actually have experienced both sides, um, Olga, because in the last year, um, all three of my kids have gone into mainstream education. And so I've got um, an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old and a 10-year-old. And my 16-year-old daughter, um, she wanted to, she asked to go into mainstream education because she's very academic. She's quite a high achiever. She likes to push herself. She's very self-motivated. And she wanted to get a whole portfolio of GCSEs because she had a goal of getting into a, a really prestigious music school for sixth form and she knew that to do that this is what she needed these are the hoops she had to jump through so she sort of you know instigated that herself and so we've walked that journey with her and then my eldest went into college at age 16 because again he wanted to go to university to do graphic design and he knew that he needed to get a qualification to do that and then my youngest who's 10 went into mainstream a little bit kicking and screaming, wasn't too keen on the idea. But I was very aware that at this point, he was the only one at home with me and it was too isolating really for him. He was craving more social interaction. I was craving more social interaction. And we just got to the point in our lives really where, you know, I needed to, to also explore some training and things for myself. The difference now, it being what you're describing, being that person that picks them up at the end of the day and, and having that time at the end of the day is very significant, I think. It, mm. um, it hasn't changed our relationship, but it's sort of changed my role quite a lot. That's been a process, I think, of letting go of quite a lot of things, trusting all the foundations that I've put in um, to them, trusting that, you know, they will lead their their education because that's sort of the the thrust of of self-directed education really is that they have the autonomy to lead with what they want to learn how they want to learn it who they want to learn it with 
as much as possible. It's not always 100% possible to do that with your circumstances and things, but that's what they've been used to. And seeing them in mainstream, it's a big shift. But actually what I've seen is they've carried on with that attitude towards learning. They haven't lost that. And I think it, it's reminded me of how important the family is, you know, that family unit and actually what you're investing into them in the home, whether it's in the evenings and after school and holidays or whether it's all day, is that is still the most important thing, I think. But it's such a leap of faith doing what you've done with, with, with your children as well and the, the seeing the fruit like really be really clear at the end. It requires a lot of patience, I imagine, and a lot like I said, that faith because you don't necessarily see it straight away. But whereas if you were in mainstream, it's almost like, a, okay, it must be happening because we're kind of making them doing it. But underneath it, you don't know what's happening, really. But this is a, a more patient, putting your faith in the relationship. I find it incredible that they go so many different ways as well still. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is a leap of faith, isn't it? <laughs> I think having children is a bit like that. You, you do your best don't you as parents and and you, you trust that they will grow and they will develop and you've just got to provide that environment that love that attachment um and that security that they need and they do grow somehow miraculously and they do they do learn yeah that happens oh i'm curious you mentioned that you did a lot of cooking with your mom and one of the things that we are doing is we've got a course, Housework for Children. We've noticed that a lot of kids nowadays do not do a lot around the house at all. And this is kind of the new norm. School takes a huge chunk of time. And then there's video games, there's friends. Between our generation and our kids' generation, this involvement in their household has come down from 80 to 90% to just about 25. Wow. Yeah, both in the UK and the US. So uh, we've created a course about how to get uh, kids into the housework in an empowering way and to free of shame and nagging. And I wonder what has your experience been with all three kids at home and like this aspect because this is a huge part of learning about life how to run a household basically with all that mm, it involves yeah wow that's really exciting that you're running a course on that when all three kids were at home we shared out the housework pretty evenly really even down to the evening meals we had a rota of who was cooking okay. this was obviously once my oldest two were you know able to do that but even the youngest one had to, to help out his brother or sister when it was their night for cooking when they were little it just started with basic things like you put dirty washing in the washing basket um, and then you can help me separate separate out the darks and the lights, and we'll put it in the washing machine. And I think I think learning is happening constantly, all the time. And so if you sort of can step out of the box of this is learning and this isn't learning, then everything becomes important, doesn't it? And that's one of the beauties of of home education is that you have the time and the space to do that. And it's not at the end of the day when you're exhausted. And they're maybe exhausted and ratty from school. So we had sort of, well, we tried various things over the years, but we've had sort of big things on the 
kitchen ball where, you know, everybody's got their jobs and they tick off when they've done it for the day. And I remember having somebody come and visit us um, and stay for a week. They were working in our school for a little bit. They st- they lived with us and, and they said at the end of the week, the biggest thing I, I've taken away from this week is how you guys work so much together. It's not just me wow. sort of being responsible for all the housework. All of us were doing things and taking on the responsibility of the house. And they didn't do it perfectly. You know, sometimes the jobs were not were not done brilliantly. And sometimes, you know, they'd suck things up with the hoover and then the hoover wouldn't work for a week. And <laughs> it wasn't a perfect, you know, lovely picture. It definitely wasn't that. But we did we did all take responsibility and we did try to make it fun so we would put music on when it was sort of the time of day when we were all doing some jobs and a lot of dancing happens in our house with music and and even in our school that we were running in Asia the time of day when we all did chores um, we didn't have cleaners so even the toilets and things were cleaned by staff and children together Um, we would put on music really sort of uplifting music that people can sing to and can move to and dance to and it just brings a whole atmosphere of you know joy and participation everyone's busy and everyone's getting on with it my background is in music so I'm really passionate about the power of music <laughs> I've definitely seen it it's worth in terms of doing things like jobs around the house definitely and there's a time too I sometimes say to my son we need to tidy and he goes oh <laughs> And I say, two songs, let's choose one song each. When they're finished, we're finished. That's because it. it's never going to be perfect. Yeah. But we're just going to do a little bit. And then he's like, Mom, you've chosen the longest song <laughs> possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever. <laughs> he sees through it, though. I love it. What yeah. was it like uh, founding, founding a school, Anna? The um, hardest thing I think I've ever done, yeah. Uh, but also the best. I felt so unqualified to do it. I didn't have a background in running schools or school management or anything like that. Um, I just had experience of home educating my own children. But in the city that we were living in, in Asia, well, maybe i go wind back a tiny bit actually to how it started, because I think that sort of story is quite poignant when we're thinking about children and how they learn and things so when we moved out to Asia my eldest was really struggling with the adjustment couldn't communicate with anyone because he didn't have the language was missing his friends in England and every night he would sort of cry himself to sleep and I'd just lie next to him and hold him and feel it you know and as a parent all that guilt comes up and you think what have I done But uh, he woke up one day, we must have been there maybe two months, he woke up and he said, Mum, I've just had the best idea. And I was like, oh, okay, what is it? Thinking it was going to be something about food, because it's normally about food with him. And he said, oh, well, you know, I I want to make friends. And I said, yeah. And he said, but I can't because I can't speak the language. And I said, yeah, I understand. And he said, well, what I was thinking was, I love playing with Lego And you don't need any language for Lego. So I was wondering if maybe I could start some Lego clubs in our house. And I said, well, that's a great idea. That's fantastic. 
And at that time, um, where we were living, Lego hadn't sort of come in yet. It was the locals didn't really know what Lego was, but we'd shipped a whole load of of my son's Lego over from England. So I said, "Okay, so what are you going to do? How are you going to, you know, find people and stuff?" And he said, "Well, I thought about that. I'm going to make a sign that says Lego Club, and I'm going to stick it on um, one of my wooden swords, and I'm going to go downstairs and just stand outside our apartment block." with the sign and an arrow and see if anyone comes with me. And me and my husband were like, oh gosh, this could be awful. <laughs> what if nobody comes? And, but we just thought, you know, he's really passionate about this and he's come up with it himself. And it was a problem that he was, you know, he was seeing there's this problem, he needs friends and he can't communicate and he'd come up with a solution. So we thought, right, we need to just support him with this and see where it goes. So he went down to, we, I think we were living on the fourth floor. He went down to the ground floor and we were sort of peering out the balcony window to see what was going to happen. And he stood there with this sign and literally about 20 minutes later, he came up the stairs with a group of about 15 local kids. They didn't know what they were coming to. <laughs> he couldn't explain it, but they, he, he sort of you know, ushered them all in and he showed them all his Lego on the floor. And these kids were just in heaven with it. They just, wow. you know, swarmed on this pile of Lego and he was showing them things he'd made and they had a whale of a time. And the the short story of that is that that sort of gathered a lot of traction in our city and people started hearing about it and asking him really? to go to different places and run Lego clubs. And he was Amazing. he was seven, seven at the time, quite a mature seven-year-old, but still only seven. And so he was taking his box of Lego from England to these different places and running clubs for like 40, 50 kids. And through that, we got to know a load of families mm -hmm. and they started asking us so much about the way we educated our children and the way we were parenting them as well, which was very sort of different to the culture there. And eventually they said, we want this for our children. So would can you open a school? Oh, so you were asked um, to do it? We were wow. asked to do it. So it's yeah. from a need, really, that, that had become apparent. And I said no the first few times when they asked me. I just said, no, I have no, no idea how to do this. And also, I hadn't even, at that point, I hadn't even found out about democratic education. Mm. I was just sort of basically unschooling mm -hmm. our children. Eventually, I said, okay, I'll look into it. So I researched and did loads of reading for about three months, just really got obsessive about it. And I thought, my goodness, there is an actual way to to have a school, to have to have a community where the children are being completely self-directed in their learning. And I'd never heard of this before. And I started reading about Summer Hill School in the UK, Sudbury Valley School in the States, and there are various others in Europe as well. And I just thought, oh, this, this is it. Because not only can the children direct their learning, they can be in community and they can actually learn how to do life together, which is what it's all about, isn't it? It's not about being little, little islands everywhere, but it's about being together. And I got really excited and I thought, okay, I'm going to see if this works. But it was trial and error every day. <laughs> the, the biggest roller coaster me and my husband have ever been on. 
we said, okay, we'll just do an open evening and see if anybody is interested. So we did this open evening in a hotel meeting room and um, got to the time and we had people queuing down the street to really? come, into the, yeah. come into the meeting room. We couldn't actually wow. fit people in because there were so many families that were desperate for this. And we just thought, oh, my goodness, this is such a big need here. You know, you probably know a little bit about education in Asia, but typically it's very, very formal. Um, there is there is not really much choice or freedom in it. And it's not very holistic either. It's um, very performance-based. So this was completely different to anything they'd experienced. Um, but it came from my son sort of having the freedom to, to um, go with an idea and an interest that he had and also a, a solution to a problem that he'd seen. And I, I think that's something that hopefully he, he'll carry for life. He's, he's just written his personal statement for university and in it, he's put something about his love for graphic design and my love for problem solving. And did, thought, did, yes, he put, yes. did he put a bit of our Lego in? No. No, he didn't, no. It's not just the love, it's the experience. It's by, I don't know, 16, 17, you know, I have done this incredible thing and it started something, something like this. This is mind-blowing. And the culture we've both experienced there in Asia. To me, the big one was the idea of the right answer and the teacher knows yeah. the right answer. And my job as a student is to get it right for the teacher. It doesn't matter what I yeah. think. It doesn't matter yeah. opinions. It, it's about getting it right to get that pass or that mark. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, mm. definitely. Definitely. And, and the teachers are like God mm -hmm. um, in those schools. You never would question a teacher. You do exactly what they say. The discipline was very shame-based, yes. very, very shame-based. Mistakes, you know, were not tolerated. It was not okay to make a mistake. Whereas we were sort of giving them the opposite environment of make a mistake that's the best way to learn how was it for them how, please tell me how was it for, for these kids at first I think a shock mm -hmm. it was a shock and they took a long time to realize that we weren't an authoritative figure in that setting that we were there you know we would keep them safe and we you know make sure all their needs are met sort of those basic physical needs and everything but we weren't there to tell them what to do and how to do it. And that took quite a lot of sort of unlearning for, for most of those local children. I remember one, one boy that had come from mainstream school and he was a little bit older. He was about 11 or 12, I think, at the time. And he came in and he said, so, so where do I have to put my bag? And I was like, oh, you can just choose choose a corner that you'd like to put your bag in. People sort of, you know, commandeer their own little corners everywhere. And he looked at me and he just sort of froze. He didn't know what to do. And he, I said, okay, let's go and find somewhere that you feel comfortable and you can sort of set your stuff up there. And it is a big shock, I think, for children and probably in a similar way, but less dramatic in the UK as well, coming from a mainstream environment into a very self-directed environment because in a lot of ways it's easy isn't it and comfortable to just let somebody else tell you what to do and it's it can be really challenging and difficult and frustrating for some children as well to suddenly be given choices especially if they're from a family where that's not done at home very much 
Um, and that was generally the case where we were living, that it was not just different to the education system, but it was different to the parenting style as well that we found there. So, yeah, they took time to sort of unlearn things and to realise we weren't going to tell them off. That was a big thing. When they did okay. something wrong, they would immediately look scared and look at us as if we were going to, you know, shout at them or... Uh, I mean, some schools, they were still using like a cane to, to punish kids. So it, it took time. And the thing that sort of helped them transition the most was doing really relationship building activities. So we did quite a lot of camping, took them away and actually, you know, had really immersive time together. Just just the staff and the and the kids we did sort of theme days like we had a star wars day or we we regularly did things like massive water fights or paint fights um that sort of thing really deliberately to try and build the relationship because that is the foundation i really believe for all learning and education to happen so it took time it was time consuming but the fruit was absolutely beautiful <laughs> yeah are you still in touch with some of the families? Yeah, yeah, some of them. Yeah, Actually, yeah. a few of them are coming over next week for a really? visit to London and things. So I'm hoping, really so hoping to up? see a few of them, yeah. Been difficult with the pandemic because they've not been able to travel very easily. But yeah, it's getting better now. So, <laughs> well, That really speaks to that relationship that you're still in touch and seeing each other all those years after. Yeah. Yeah. Mainstreams, well, a lot of people, parents as well, don't see that value in the relationship. In fact, they use it against children to try and get them to go the way they want them to go. I mean, that's what time out does, really, for young children. Yeah. It's saying, if, if you're not doing what I want, then I'm going to take my presence away from you, basically. To use the presence against children. And just to see that as a, a founding, a starting place is so refreshing. Mm. But it's it's a messy and sort of slow process it's not clean cut you can't sort of fit it into a box can you it's it's no. messy so messy with one messy with two <laughs> even messy with three um, with a school messy with 50 definitely yeah <laughs> or for schools to appreciate the value of this relationship that is really the foundation for all the learning sometimes at our schools there's a a carnival of teachers get one one day one the next day one for half the day and yes they're really understaffed but sometimes they're doing it on purpose for the students to experience different teaching styles and one teacher is better at math than one teacher when all it happens they the kids shut down because it's an unknown teacher and i'm talking primary school here even uh, even though it's potentially even more valid for teenagers we learn from who we are attached to yeah you remember the teachers yeah. i still get attached still to my now. tutors and facilitators yeah. Yeah. and when there's a new one i've not got the same connection give me my yeah mm. give me my tutor back yeah yeah i'm open to learning from them and that i'm 36 you know yeah yeah definitely we saw that really clearly actually in our school when we had new staff come in. At the beginning of every term, the staff would sort of offer lots of different classes that the kids had brainstormed the, the term before on things they wanted to do. Like, you know, it might be they wanted to learn how to make rockets or they wanted to do um, 
vegetable growing in the garden or whatever it might be, they'd sort of come up with all the ideas and then the staff sort of made like a buffet almost, you know, in front of them and said, here's the options for this next, I think, about eight weeks. Pick anything you'd like to do or don't pick anything is fine. And in that process, when we had new staff come in where the kids hadn't already got that relationship with them and weren't, weren't, weren't really attached to them, those new staff didn't have a chance. <laughs> they just, because they could have offered the most interesting class, the kids wouldn't pick it until they knew them, until they trusted them. Whereas for, for those of us who'd been there from the start and had already built that foundation of relationship, I mean, we could have offered anything and they would have said, yeah, we'll do it because they just wanted mm. to spend time with us. It was really obvious how important the relationship was when you saw it in that setting as well. And I used to say to my new staff, don't panic, don't worry, just play with them, just play, just be there, just, you know. <laughs> By next term, it'll be a different story. It'll come. Yeah. And even that foundation is so much different to like a, a teacher coming in and making, okay, time to learn, just shortcutting all that groundwork, basically. Mm. Yeah. It makes it so much harder to teach and for the kids to learn, doesn't it, if they don't know who they're actually learning with. And it also just it becomes not a partnership anymore. It's It's an authority figure isn't it who's telling them what to learn and telling them how to learn it whereas we're taking that away and, and putting the student and the staff member the adult in the environment as equal which can be very challenging as well for adults coming into the environment I can imagine it's a lot of unlearning for for us to do as well but I think that's also why it's so beautiful because the, you know the kids are being completely self-directed in their learning and actually alongside them the adults in the environment are doing the same. They're learning and they're, they're making mistakes and they've got the freedom to do that. You know, as I'm not going to come down on them like a ton of bricks if they make a mistake. We're just going to do what we do with the kids and talk about it and work out what did work, what didn't work, how we want to go forwards. And I think modelling that to the students was really, really powerful, especially for kids who had never seen it at home, maybe, or in, in any environment, never seen it. They didn't have anything to sort of, you know, relate it to or compare it to. So seeing adults doing that, and we were really open about when we did make a mistake, or if they asked us something we had no clue about, you know, we'd show them what we do. Or, well, we're going to go look it up on the internet, or we're going to ring a friend, and or actually my dad is an amazing scientist, I'm going to ring my dad and ask him if he knows how this works in the body, or whatever it might be. And just sort of show them that we're not all powerful, we don't know it all, we, you know, that we're learning with them. Yes, because if you think your job is to hold on to that place of being respected by all means, that then you will not want to show ignorance and that's threatening or to show that you are still learning. Yeah, mm. and I think in an, in an Asian culture that was even more... So the case and, and the parents sort of wanted us to be that authority figure and even things like, you know, not divulging everything about their child and what they were doing at school to the parents was like mind blowing for the parents because they just thought, well, why, why can't you tell us? And we'd say, well, we're just going to check with so and so if if he's happy for us to share something that happened today. And and they'd just be like, wow, OK do you really need to do that? Can't you just tell us? You're the teacher, you know. 
we're paying the money for this. Can't you just tell us? Wow. <laughs> so that was, yeah, topsy-turvy, I guess, for the for that culture as well. Uh, but also here, I think, isn't it? Well, respect only goes one way upwards yeah. to the elders. What kind of feedback would you get from, from the parents after they'd been there for a while? Really excellent feedback, but we had to really invest in building relationship with them okay as well um, and getting them on board yeah so I think by the end of my time at the school I was spending probably 50% maybe 60% of my time with the parents giving them the opportunity to ask lots of questions we did sort of book clubs together where we'd go for a book together A.S. Neal's book on Summer Hill was was a good one and that had been translated into the their language as well and I had an open door policy for parents as well so they did they could come in and talk to me at any time and I think that made the biggest difference because it was so different to what they were used to you know they're sending their child off to this place they're trusting us if they can't see what what's happening that's really scary and when people are scared it gets worse and worse doesn't it it starts building up into this big what's happening are they not eating their lunch are they just sitting in front of a screen all day are they what are they doing all day and and the child will come back and they'll say what did you do oh just played you know they won't they won't tell them all the details of everything they did that day and parents will just start to worry and really panic actually and think they're not learning what are we doing here this is wasting time they're not learning and sometimes kids would get little bit more I don't know a better word than sort of feral <laughs> you know they'd get a little bit a bit more wild and a bit more free with their expression of their emotions with their behavior with their choices that they made daily and it would quite often go through a phase like that and then they'd start to reel it in and decide actually how they wanted to act and how they like be more intentional but it was quite a a journey that the, the child would go on and with that the parents there would be various levels of anxiety and the only cure for that was to spend time with them and to let them come in and to let them see and to tell them stories of things that the students were happy for us to share and that was really important I think but that takes a lot of time yes. <laughs> and in mainstream school that's not possible yeah, I was gonna say it's like two schools basically isn't it yeah school for the children school for the parents but the legacy you probably have left mm, there i hope so wow yeah. for the children and for their future families wow but the same happens here there will be like the last day of the term before christmas and all kids do is they well i know in my son's school they will play and they will watch a movie and eat popcorn and it, inevitably some parents will be like well that's a lot of learning happening <laughs> Inevitably, what you said was so important for me to hear when we stop separating this is learning and this is not learning. Mm. Because still very much learning is this idea of sitting down with a book. Mm. And accomplishing something very measurable. Yes. Mm. Yes. They pick that up really quickly, don't they, in school, I think. Yeah. We're now finished with the Stone Age. That's it. Done. Yeah. Off to the Greeks. Ticked off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's often very unconnected to, to life, isn't it? It's 
it's just in that one hour we're going to talk about Romans or whatever it might be. And, and then it's never mentioned until next week at the same time. It's just information. It's, it's just information a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, there are wonderful teachers who can bring topics to life and really apply it to life in mainstream education. It's not to say that it's all like that at all. My son's got a wonderful teacher at the moment, which I, who I'm really grateful for. And she brings things to life and she really is, you know, embeds a topic into everything they do um, throughout the whole day. But I think it's really hard for teachers to do that in the system. Because they've got the curriculum. Yeah. And she's lucky. She She's still single. She has doesn't go home and have a whole family to look after. So she probably spends hours planning and preparing. But it's not the norm, I don't think, is it? Oh, wow, Anna. I must say, all the questions we prepared kind of went out of the window. What you're saying is amazing. <laughs> it's so important. This is topic. It's really important. So important, I think, for people to hear. Just to be have an opening to and see what, that this can happen. I think that one of the barriers is that people sometimes just don't know there's another option, yeah. do they? Or they've never experienced it themselves. No one's ever told them. They've never seen it. It's just... Yes. Well, yeah, my child at five will go to, to mainstream school and that's that. There is, of course he will. There's no other option. Yeah. I'm very grateful that, you know, I grew up with that experience. So I knew there was always another option, but not everyone does know. And, and I think that's, it's really important what you guys are doing to actually spread the word that there, <laughs> there are different ways of educating. Oh, thank you. We're trying. And the schools mm. are crumbling and, and it's not just the funding, it's the, uh, just as you said, the, this mm. dedicated teacher is able to be so dedicated because she is single. Yeah. So yeah. basically being a full-time dedicated teacher is nearly incompatible with having a family. And that's really sad, isn't it? Are you going to ask your question, mm. Olga? Yes. So yes, we've got this uh, traditional wrap-up question. What is something that you do for play? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I've got better at this. I think over the years because I wasn't very good at it. It was all focused on playing with my children and okay. doing what they wanted to do. But over the last few years, I've been really intentional about this. And yes. um, my ideal place of being able to play and just be in my happy place is hanging in a hammock in the woods with my book. <laughs> I absolutely love that. If somebody sort of says, what, you know, if you could choose anything to do today, what would you do? That would be it. I love my hammock and I love the woods. I love the sound. I love the smells. I love the light that comes through and I love reading. Um, that would be my ideal place. Thank you so much, Anna. All right. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. It's lovely.